0: if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Perhaps no book in the Bible lays out more directly what the church ought to be than this book. And no chapter in the Bible lays out more, uh, in more detail what is required of leaders in the Bible than this particular chapter. We want to read the whole chapter this morning, all the way to the end, verses 1 through 16, if you will follow along as I read. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, "...respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate. Faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We all understand the importance of the gospel of Christ. Apart from it, there is no salvation deviate from it and we are lost eternally the gospel is at the heart of the message that we proclaim but we often fail to consider the importance of the support structure for the gospel we've talked about this idea of the church and its relationship to the gospel and how vital it is for the church to do things God's way in the past couple of months as we've considered the subject of your ministry in the church, a philosophy of ministry, looking at what it means to approach ministry biblically. But the last thing that the Apostle Paul addresses before he makes the point of the importance of the church in light of the gospel has to do with the leadership and the qualifications of leadership in the church. Paul says here in verses 14 and 15, there's a way you ought to conduct yourself in In the church because of the greatness of the gospel message and he sees it as so important for the way that the church ought to operate that leaders would exist and be qualified that he lays out an entire chapter at least in the way that we have it divided detailing what a person needs to be in order to actually be qualified for the role. This implies the importance of having leaders in the church, but it also implies the importance of having qualified leaders in the church. This is not something that is simply an add-on to the gospel, but it is something that if the gospel is to be protected and preserved for ages to come, that if, if this is to become a generational ministry and not simply one for one generation, that this has to take place in the church. There must be leadership There must be qualified leadership. But unfortunately, unlike many things in life, it seems that sometimes people have the expectation that leaders will simply arise and show up on their own and that there's nothing that we need to do to make sure that it happens. It would be a strange thing if you came uh, into your kitchen and expected that a meal would simply be on the table without having done anything to bring home the groceries or cook the food. It would be a strange thing if you expected your car to drive if you never put any kind of gas in it and in fact didn't even turn on the ignition. It would be strange for us in many ways if we did not put in the work needed to develop what was necessary. And so it is with the church. Oftentimes the church neglects and forgets its responsibility to actually make sure that leaders are developed and appointed. They don't just show up. In fact, oftentimes, if a leader does just show up to the church that has not been trained in the church, this will be worse than having that person not be a leader at all because they have not seen godly examples or have their doctrine hemmed in in the context of the church community. And instead, they often can be very self-willed, a direct contradiction of the instruction that's given In Titus chapter 1, regarding the qualification of an overseer. It is vital that the church not outsource its leadership to whoever happens to show up and walk through the door. To whoever happens to be trained in a seminary or any other such institution. The church needs to make sure that it's in the business of valuing and training, very intentionally, its own leaders. Now, this, of course, is not to say that leaders can't come from one church to another. We find many examples of this in Scripture. Most notably, perhaps, you have a man named Apollos who went to various places in the New Testament, and was encouraged to go to different churches, uh, even though he was not from those particular churches. And these existing churches were greatly helped by people who would travel back and forth, uh, one of them being this particular man. There is nothing in the scripture that forbids people from moving between churches, nothing that forbids leaders from being raised up in one place and going to another. But the point does stand that we simply can't neglect this responsibility and expect that leaders will simply show up And that everything will continue to grow and to be strengthened in the body of Christ built up the way that it should be. We need to make sure that we carry out our responsibilities to do this. This is a vital, vital thing. And we want to talk about this idea of developing leaders uh, toward the latter part of our time this morning. Uh, What I want to do in the first part, is to pick up where we left off last time and just to lay out a little bit more about what biblical leadership actually looks like and who it is that is in those positions. Um, Just by way of review, last time we looked at the principles of biblical leadership. Principles of biblical leadership... First and foremost, the benefits that come from faithful leaders and, of course, the drawbacks that can come from leaders who are not faithful. How faithful leaders protect us. They watch over us. They give us godly examples. They help us to be uh, looked out for when when we are tempted to follow false doctrine. They show us what Christianity looks like. These people make decisions when they need to be made. There are benefits that come from having faithful leaders, and so it's important for leaders to be godly and to be faithful. Uh, We looked as well at some of the activities and the attributes of faithful leaders. And so if you'd like to know more about that, you can go back and listen last week. We also then began to look at the people in biblical leadership, uh, starting with the officers of the church. And considered, first of all, this office that's described here in verses 1 through 7 of 1 Timothy 3. Namely, the office of overseer, or what is also known as the office of pastor, or the office of elder. These three terms describe three different angles on the one office, which unfortunately is sometimes separated and divided out into different offices within the church functionally, but which biblically refers to the same group of people who are able to teach the scriptures, able to lead and manage well the household of God, who desire to do the work, and who are qualified to do this in their character. These are the people that give leadership to the church. And uh, some of the functions that they have include the following it includes oversight oversight general governance of the church making decisions and so on um, in first timothy 5 verse 17 i'm going to give you a few quick references and just mention there so you can write these down or you can turn quickly whatever you prefer first timothy five seventeen, the elders who rule well it refers to the elders who rule well this speaks about the fact that the elders are the ones who rule who govern the church These people are in charge in that particular way. Um, In Acts 20, verse 28, a passage that we looked at uh, at some length last time. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, it says, The Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Has made you overseers, speaking to the elders of the church. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17, it says... Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. They keep watch over your souls. Again, they give oversight to the flock. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, it says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but voluntarily exercising oversight. What this means then is that this particular office is not just a group of people who encourage. It is not just a group of people who teach. Instead, there are people who are in charge of the church. Now again, as we talked about last time, this speaks to the vital importance of these people being properly qualified. And so much of what goes wrong in people having authority in our day that causes people to rebel against authority or really rebel against the idea of people being in charge and to not want to follow the authority of anyone is that those people do not exercise that authority and wield it in a way that is beneficial for the people who are under their care. They use leadership for their own interests rather than for the interests of the people that they are over. They are not servant leaders. They are leaders who are lording it over those allotted to their charge. They're not not in the position to serve the people that they care for. They're in the position to use people for their own good. And while there is authority that's involved in either case, the attitude with which one exercises that authority makes an enormous difference. So there is oversight that is given. This kind of authority is given to the leaders and they are supposed to watch over and make sure that everything is fine. Related to this is the idea of shepherding. Shepherding. Again, Acts chapter 20, they are supposed to shepherd the flock of God. Acts 20 verse 28. And the same thing here in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock of God among you. Uh, when you Think about the picture of a shepherd. This, of course, is the kind of thing that includes caring deeply for each particular sheep in the flock. We read about Jesus' account in Luke 15 in the parable of uh, the parable of the prodigal son. How even though there were 99 sheep who were fine, there is the one sheep who he goes after. And there is more joy rejoicing over the one who comes back than there was over the 99 who didn't leave. Now, granted, the parable is directly itself about repentance, but it speaks to the fact that God cares about people individually and that we don't, when it comes to ministry and leadership, simply say that it doesn't matter who stays, who goes, who's doing well, who's not. As long as the general trend is that we're getting bigger. That's the way sometimes that quote unquote ministry goes. All you're, you're concerned about is the size and the growth in that sense of numbers. Someone who is a godly leader cares about people individual people the apostle paul says in first second uh, corinthians chapter 10 who is weak excuse me chapter 11 who is weak without my being weak who is led into sin without what my intense concern my intense concern he spoke of the daily concern that he had for all the churches this was a man who modeled what it meant to care deeply about people, to care about every person in the church, to care about every church that he had served at and helped to establish. In Galatians chapter four, we find a similar heart as well. And he says this in um, verse 19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Elsewhere, Paul spoke of The labor and striving in the work sense that comes. He labored and strove in that regard. But here he's talking about the labor of childbirth. He says that's the kind of agony that I'm in because you are not understanding the gospel properly and applying it properly in your life. This is the kind of concern that he had. A shepherd cares about his sheep he watches he cares about everything that happens he cares if they do right or wrong he cares if they are acting in ways that honor the Lord or not and of course all of this is driven by one of the things that we talked about at the very beginning of this series the goals of ministry one of which is the idea of spiritual transformation in light of the day of Christ and in 2 Corinthians 11 Paul says in verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband. So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He wants them to be ready for the day of Christ. And the day of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The day when believers will be in a sense given to Jesus Christ. That's basically everything that Paul could see. And it's all in light of that. That he does his ministry. And so it is also with a shepherd. Or with a pastor, which describes the way in which they care for people in light of that day. So a pastor or a shepherd not only exercises oversight, but also cares deeply and is involved in the lives of the people under his charge. He also models godliness. This is the idea behind being an elder. There is a spiritual maturity that's implied here. It's expected that it should come with age to some degree. That a person who is growing in godliness, excuse me, growing in age and is a Christian should actually be more mature the older that they get. Now sadly it doesn't work that way. Sadly many times believers stagnate or they reverse in certain ways so that age unfortunately, doesn't necessarily imply maturity, but it ought to. And therefore, those who are elders ought to be able to set an example to model for the congregation what godliness looks like. Again, I mentioned last time Hebrews 13, 7, where it says to imitate the faith of those who led you and those who spoke the word of God to you. There is a component of modeling to this leadership and then of course fourthly in addition to exercising oversight shepherding modeling there is something that goes along with really all of this which is teaching teaching the word of God it is not just enough to administer it's not just enough to live a godly life it's not just enough to care for people but the distinct component that qualifies someone to be able to do this effectively in the church is that they are able to teach teaching 1 Timothy 3, two says a man must be able to teach. Titus 1.9 says he must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Such a person must be able to teach so that he can protect from false doctrine, so that he can build up the body. Ephesians 4.12 says that pastors and teachers are given to equip the saints for ministry. So if the body is going to function properly, to be protected from error, to grow in grace, to be equipped to serve one another then they need to be able to teach so these are the things that an elder an overseer is going to be doing and you can see hopefully the value of having people who are able to do that it is vital to the life and growth and safety and protection of the church to have people who are doing this and so we ought to care deeply that such people exist in our church and we'll talk again shortly about what we can do To bring that about, there is another office though that's spoken of in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It is the office of deacons. You can look there again, the office of deacons. There is not much said in the Bible about this office, and yet there is enough to set a precedent for the benefit and the importance of it. It is only spoken of actually as an office. Twice by name, the word "servant" or what is transliterated as "deacon" (diakonos) uh, is used many times in the New Testament, but it's only used twice in the sense of the office of deacon in an obvious way. Philippians chapter one, verse one is one of those where it speaks to the overseers and deacons, and then here in First Timothy three eight. Um, Probably by virtue of the fact that it's spoken of in the plural in both cases, this indicates that there can. And probably should be more than one of them. Although this doesn't seem to be as clearly required as, in, uh, as it does with elders. Not only that, but many churches in the New Testament, there is no mention of deacons at all. And it's interesting that it shows up in churches that are a little bit more mature. Not because deacons have to wait until a church has been established for some time. But it does seem that when a church is maturing and is mature, that it will probably and should probably have some deacons. Now, the qualifications for such people is found here in 1 Timothy 3. And as you can see, character is the emphasis. Over and over again, they must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, nor addicted to wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. If you look in verse 12 as well, they must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children And their own households. So the character emphasis for them is large. Um, You'll notice here as well that there is something on uh, in verse ten about either, excuse me, verse eleven about either women, depending on your translation, or wives. Now the word itself uh, can mean either one, depending upon the context in which is used. You may be familiar with this difficulty, and in fact, it is hotly debated in the church. even among those who are like-minded in almost everything else with regard to church leadership because the issue is so difficult grammatically to sort out. And so there are a number of arguments on either side. Where we have landed in our church and in its practice is that the judgment call is that this refers to deacon's wives and that the office of deacon is only for men. But nonetheless, it's good to be aware of this and to see that even here, there are emphases on character that are spoken of. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. You'll notice the absence here of any requirement to be able to teach. This is not to say that a deacon cannot teach in any way that they can't be able to but that this is not fundamentally a part of the requirements and fundamentally not a part of their role when you have deacons mentioned in the bible in both cases they are listed with the elders and listed after the elders now that doesn't absolutely guarantee this but it would seem best to understand that to mean that these are those who work with and at the direction of the elders of the church. Perhaps it's best to understand it this way, that they assist the elders in leading the church. There are qualifications that demonstrate that there is some degree of leadership here. And yet at the same time, they are those who they are not listed in that office, which has been clearly stated in other places as the office that oversees the church, namely the elders of the church. So what you have here is a role that is very important and very useful but it is one which also does not set its own agenda ultimately speaking now unfortunately in many places in many churches that the deacons the board of deacons often becomes the de facto elder board of the church they make all the decisions ultimately they exercise authority over whatever pastors may be there and there are a lot of reasons for this Uh, a misunderstanding of the way that scripture lays this out, or just the fact that they are there for a long time or that they find ways to have control and they're not concerned about the authority structure that scripture has laid out. But when deacon ministry is practiced biblically, deacons view themselves as leaders who operate in support of the elders of the church, even though the elders may give them great latitude about how to minister. Now, you might look at this office and say, well, if they're not teaching and they're not in charge, then and it's just a servant role anyway, then I don't really need to worry about whether I or anybody else would be in this office. I mean, isn't it just kind of a recognition of what you're already doing? Well, in some sense, it is a recognition of what you're already doing, but there are a few reasons why this is not the case and why it's important to have this office and why it's important that people should be concerned about perhaps trying to become someone who holds this office. First of all, God actually appointed an office. It's here, and he did so for a reason. So evidently, God thinks that there is some distinction between simply serving and actually holding the office of deacon. So we need to take that into account above and beyond anything. Um, Also, the office of deacon will bestow upon someone a certain kind of authority. They are being in this position of an office of deacon, and there is some degree of authority that is there. Now, the way that that's carried out and what that authority looks like is going to vary from situation to situation. But this gives someone a little bit more of an ability to operate and say, I am operating in this particular position. The elders of the church have delegated this responsibility or this degree of authority to me. And you, when you are following my leadership, so long as I don't contradict that, you are actually submitting to the leadership of the church in this way. So it's not simply someone who is a good example of serving, but this is someone who is being appointed to a role, to an office, which carries some real degree of authority in the church. So this clarifies, who do we listen to? Who directs ministry? And this is why this is here. Um, Another reason why we need to pay close attention to this and actually care about whether we uh, enter into this office of deacon or not is that these qualifications force us to reckon with the character matters that may keep us from serving faithfully. Um, We may fail to pursue the office of deacon yet still desire to serve and this can allow us to hold on to certain character flaws That we think, well, this keeps us out of being a deacon. But these character flaws won't just go away because we're serving outside of this role. And these can hinder our ministry. We need to really grapple with these things. If we think there's something that prevents us from being in a biblical office, be it deacon or elder, and we are otherwise qualified or desirous to do that, then we should look at that and say, you know, why is it that I'm not qualified for this? And what do I need to do about this? Because aside from the ability of being able to teach, all of these are things that we should all aspire to as Christians, to be the kind of person that this could be said about us in our character, that we are these things and we do these things. If you um, want to have a particular career, and you can't get into a, the kind of education program that would be required for that. You can't pass the competency exam, for example. And you say, well, you know, I can't pass that, but I'm just going to go learn on my own the stuff that the school teaches. Well, a lot of times there's a reason why they make you you take the exam up front, isn't there? So that you actually can enter being able to learn. You have the baseline. And you can say, I'm going to go learn all these things, but you won't be able to go and grasp them and understand them until you have these core competencies. Well, the same thing is true about elder and deacon qualifications you can say I want to serve in this way I just don't want to hold the office well you're not going to be able to do as good of a job in that case in actually serving in those ways until you actually get yourself in a position where you would be qualified for the office and so it ought to be if at all possible the desire of every single man in the church that he would be at least deacon qualified to be able to have the kind of character where you could be entrusted with something in this way. Now, it may be that this doesn't turn out to be the best fit or the giftedness or that this doesn't fit with the role that is needed in the church. It may be that you may not have time to hold to particular responsibilities, but you ought to say, if my character is not here, I want to get here. I want to be there because this is the kind of character that godly men should aspire to regardless of this. So that's another reason why we should care about the office. There is one more as well, which is there is a reward for doing this. Verse 13, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you say, well, that sounds a little bit self-serving. Why would I serve in order to get that? Well, the Apostle Paul felt like it was appropriate to motivate us with this reward And he, of course, was against pride in all its forms. So if we think that this is proud, then we need to revisit that. We ought to love this type of assurance that would come. Great confidence in the faith that's in Christ Jesus if we are a deacon and serve well in that role. And so if this all sounds like something you want, I would love to be able to have that kind of confidence. Then why not pursue this? Why not become the kind of person who could take these things on? And why not do what's necessary to bring that about? Now, there is something in addition to these roles these, of elders and deacons that it may be uh, that the church has other various types of leadership or uh, things that are necessary to do that would come under the authority of one or both of these particular offices. And I just want to briefly mention then others in leadership roles. Others in leadership roles. There may be uh, there may be people who lead a small group, people who teach in various kinds uh, kinds of ways, various ministry leaders who give direction and carry responsibility in certain forms. And so, just because these are the two offices, doesn't mean that in some way or another there will not be leadership that comes underneath them and that serves alongside of them as well. Uh, so I just want to mention these things to say that we all should be, even if this is not an office holder leadership per se, that if you are leading a Bible study of some kind, that if you're leading a discipleship group of some kind, or if you're simply, uh, you are simply helping someone as a counselor in the church, that whatever the role might be, that you ought to aspire to have godly character And you ought to be encouraged to take on leadership responsibility where it means that you can benefit other people by exercising that. So there are others in leadership roles of various kinds that come about. And we want also to recognize that those things do help and benefit the church. So we ought to want people to be qualified to fill those roles as well. Now then, if this kind of leadership is needed, what can we do to be involved in making that happen. I wanna consider next the pursuit of biblical leadership, the pursuit of biblical leadership. And this is both on the individual level and the pursuit of this as a church, the church pursuing biblical leadership, the possession of it, the maintenance of it, the development of it, the pursuit of biblical leadership. I wanna just first consider why we would do this. Why pursue leadership? And the importance of godly leaders. And I just want to make sure that you recognize how important this is to what we're doing. This kind of ministry that we've been talking about for weeks as a church needs to have people leading it who understand this, who are qualified to do this, who desire to do this. Leadership is essential in this way. The Lord appointed leaders throughout scripture who would lead in the way that he wanted. What did he do in Israel? What kind of person was he seeking after when he appointed the king? Well, of course, he appointed King Saul, but Saul didn't care about what God said. He ultimately only cared about his own desires. So he brought in King David and he said that he was seeking a man, what? After God's own heart. This is the kind of ruler that he wanted. And whenever a good king died and his son after him didn't follow the Lord with the same faithfulness, horrible things happened in Israel. And so having godly leaders and a line of godly leaders that lasts is essential Christ came to earth and chose specific men to be with him, to learn from him all day, every day, so that they would have what they needed to know and to the example that they needed to be able to lead his people after their departure. And then these men, the apostles, themselves determined that they needed to appoint other people to guard the truth that had been entrusted to them as well. So the apostles started churches and they made sure that there were elders in place Acts 14.23, we read last week that they appointed elders in every church that they had founded. So this was the constant practice of Paul and his co-workers, the other apostles, to set up and establish qualified elders. So if there is such a thing as leadership needed for a mature and protected church, then why don't people pursue leadership? Why don't more people do this? Why don't people say I want to take this on. Why is it that you yourself are either not currently a leader in the church or not interested in becoming one. And I want to emphasize this in particular to the men in the church because as far as actually taking actual leadership authority these offices are for the most part where that is reserved for and these offices are reserved for men. So let's think about the question, why aren't you a leader and why might you not attempt to become one? There may be some reasons why you don't pursue leadership or haven't or why people don't pursue leadership. First of all, it might never occur to you that you should do it. You just never think about that. You're not a natural leader. You're not a leader in any other sphere of life. And you just don't really think of yourself in those terms. This is not who I am. I'm just, I just do what I'm supposed to do and I go along with that. Um, You might also simply think about church leadership in particular as vocational. That's just for pastors. That's what people do when they're going to do that for their job. Now, hopefully the fact that uh, we have, for the most part, non-vocational leadership, including even among our elders, will help you to see and get a picture for the fact that this is not the way that it has to be. You don't have to do this for your job in order to be a leader in the church. But nonetheless, this is why sometimes people don't think about it. Uh, Unfortunately, many times another reason why people don't pursue leadership is because they don't feel quote unquote called to ministry or called to a particular role. They have a common idea out there that ministry very differently than some other types of of responsibilities or activities. That leadership in the church is something that you have to be called to in some sort of mystical way. And yet here in 1st Timothy 3, Paul says it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Paul doesn't put the idea of eldership or being a deacon, a leader in the church, at any point into the idea of being called. He doesn't speak of it in that language. It's not even there at all. He speaks of it in terms of desire and then qualification an appointment if the church tests such a man and determines that he is qualified so don't ask yourself whether you feel called ask yourself whether you would like to pursue this it's an entirely different question and it opens up the door for us to pursue something that we might think that we were not permitted to do because God had not specifically called us in some mystical way of course, people sometimes don't want to pursue leadership because they know it involves responsibility. They know it involves sacrifice and they don't want to do that. They don't want to be publicly accountable for their decisions that they make. They don't want to be publicly accountable uh, in their character They don't want to be tested. They don't want to be evaluated. They don't want to receive feedback on their uh, less than optimal character qualities. And sometimes they might just not even want to let go of their sinful ways. And they might want to hold on to things that they know would disqualify them from the office. And so they never pursued it in the first place. I think this obviously is something that if is the case with you in particular, that if you're holding on to sin and you don't want to let that go because you know it would keep you out of leadership, then you need to repent of that sin and clear the way for you to become qualified rather than simply staying out of the office. So there are these kinds of reasons why people don't pursue leadership that I would encourage you to reconsider. Now, there are, of course, some bad reasons for people to pursue leadership that are good for people to consider and make sure that you're not going into it for any of these reasons. Um, For example, in James 3.14, we are warned against selfish ambition selfish ambition if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth there are people who want to teach in the church because they want to gain a larger role and a larger reputation they want something for themselves Paul warns against this in Philippians 1 17 when he says that there are some who preach Christ out of selfish ambition And there he doesn't even argue with the message that they're preaching. He assumes they're preaching that correctly. But he says they're doing it for the wrong reasons. They're trying to cause me distress in my imprisonment. It is possible to preach an accurate message. And yet to do so out of selfish ambition. And we should beware of this. Um, We also read in 3 John 9 about a man named Diotrephes. What do you know about him? Diotrephes, it says, John says this loves to be first among them i wrote something to the church but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them does not accept what we say this is a love of power a love of control people often want to be in leadership because they want things to be done their way they want to be able to get what they want and so they try to get in the position of leadership a love of power there's also selfish gain Selfish gain. 1 Peter 5.2 warns against this and says that someone who is to shepherd the flock of God is to do so not for sordid gain but with eagerness. Meaning you're not doing it for what you can get out of it. We are warned in 1 Timothy 6 about seeing godliness as a means of gain. That is being godly, or even more than that, just practicing the Christian religion in some form or another or leading the Christian religion in some form or another as a way to get something out of it, a way to get stuff, a way to get blessed. This, of course, is very popular today, is it not? Prosperity gospel and so on, but this is not limited to people who explicitly teach a prosperity gospel. This can happen to people who... See that they can get something out of leading God's people that's for themselves rather than doing it for the sake of the flock. Wrong reasons to pursue leadership would include pride, wanting to have a reputation, wanting people to think well of you. Or, as I mentioned earlier, that you feel called. You don't have a desire, you just kind of feel obligated which Peter specifically warns against here in 1 Peter 5.2, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily. You have to want to do it, not feel compelled to do it externally or in some other way. If you don't want to do it, you should not be doing it. But maybe you should change your desire to want to do it if you understand it properly. And then, of course, there are those, unfortunately, that the church gets stuck with who are not good at anything else. So they just come to be in ministry by virtue of process of elimination. And they say, well, I couldn't do anything else, so I just decided I'd become a pastor. And of course, we know that God's people deserve much better than this. If you can't do anything else and you think that ministry might be for you, then perhaps you should learn how to do some other things and you definitely should not jump into vocational ministry. But I do want to be careful on all of this. You hear these wrong reasons. I know many of you feel these things in your soul. And you say, I, I, because you care about the scripture. You care about not doing something for the wrong reasons. And this is commendable. I think this is the spirit of of most people here in our church. That you don't want to pursue things out of pride or wrong motivations or things like that. But I do want to caution you that it can be the fear of being ungodly in your pursuit of leadership. That can cause you to swing the pendulum too far the other way. And not even consider pursuing it. You're so worried about doing it for the wrong reasons... ...that you don't even consider whether you should do it at all. You just say, well, I'm proud sometimes. Or sometimes I seek my own interests. Or sometimes I'm a little selfish. So, you know, I just don't even want to mess with adding leadership to that mix. We all have a stewardship from God to exercise our giftedness that he has given to us. And if you have the potential to do this and you're just kind of worried that you might mess up... ...it might be better to continue to pursue this under the leadership of the current leaders and to make sure you eliminate and watch those motives, then it would be to just sit out of the game. We need people in our church who can take on the mantle of leadership responsibilities, and this isn't going to change and stop over time. And so we need godly people and godly men in particular who can be entrusted with this responsibility of leadership and I need you to consider why you might not be part of that. You say, well, this sounds good. I might reconsider this. How can I do that? Well, let me first speak to those who would become godly leaders. And then I want to speak to people who may not end up having leadership aspirations. How to become a godly leader. What is involved? And to give you a little bit of a bullet point list. First of all, faithfulness. Faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2 2, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is the baseline. You must be faithful in your discharge of Christian responsibilities. This means that you pursue godliness. It means that you carry out things the way that they're supposed to be done. You are a faithful steward, as 1 Corinthians 4 says in verses 1 and 2. You need to build character. Build character. You need to become a leader who is qualified. A person who is qualified according to the things that are listed in 1 Timothy 3. Titus 1, 1 Peter 5, one way to do this that is not always done is to seek feedback early and often from those who lead your church. Find out where they think that you fall short of being the kind of person who could be a leader, and they may not get that perfect, but they will be able to tell you and just be clear up front with that kind of thing. Build character. Um, Again, avoid selfish ambition. Avoid selfish ambition. Don't seek to serve for your own glory. If you are doing things and you serve in ways that may not be known, don't broadcast it. Don't try to make sure that everybody knows what you're doing. Serve when there's nothing in it for you and no recognition and no direct reward. Cultivate a fear of God. Cultivate a fear of God. Make sure that you're concerned with what he thinks about what you're doing. And this will prevent you from mistreating and abusing people under your care. Get busy serving other people. Get involved in the lives of other people. Minister to them personally. Get to know them. Pray for them. Disciple them. Counsel them. Be involved with people. This is what ministry is about. Practice the one another's. We'll talk about the one another's in a few weeks as far as It's relationship to ministry. But practice the one another's in the Bible. Be this kind of a person in the church who does these things. And then grow in your knowledge of the word of God. In other words, if you're going to summarize this in three points. Grow in godliness. Minister to others. And learn the Bible better. Grow in godliness. Minister to others. And learn the Bible better. This will equip you and get you in the practice of being the kind of person who can serve other people in leadership. So we need people who will pursue this, but we also need the support structure of the local church. You might be saying, I have no desire to do this. I'm never going to do this. I can't be qualified. I don't have the time. Um, I'm not really in a position to do this. And you know what? That's okay. But we all need to be involved in this. So how can we do our part if we're not in leadership or if we're not pursuing leadership? What can we do? Well, a few practical ideas. First of all, pray for leaders to be raised up. Pray for them to be raised up. Matthew 9:38, Jesus says, "Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers for the harvest." We can not only pray for evangelists to go out, but certainly for anyone who would be a leader in the church. Pray that you will have them. Secondly, teach others the Bible. Teach others the Bible. 2 Timothy 3:15. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings. This brought about not only salvation for Timothy ultimately, but also his ability to minister well to other people because he knew the Bible from the time he was a little kid. So, with a Sunday school class, with your own children, invest in other people. You don't know if that little two year old is one day going to be standing up in a place like this. One day going to be praying for you at an elders meeting. One day going to be sitting across from you in a discipleship meeting. You don't know these things, but they could be. And if it's not for you, then it could be for someone else. They haven't failed if they don't become that particular person someday. But it would be great to provide the kind of atmosphere in which people could rise to those roles. So then teach others the scriptures. Um Hebrews 13, 17, obey and submit to your leaders, which that verse says makes their leadership profitable for you. If you resist leaders all the time, that's going to be difficult to have leaders who are actually effectively leading. So if we want to maintain and promote godly leadership in the church then following the leadership that's there in the first place is good. Again, as you all know, this doesn't mean you never differ with them in any way. It doesn't mean you don't express differences. It doesn't mean that you don't take a different interpretation of a passage. But it does mean that you follow the leadership in the way that the Bible describes. Fourthly, insist upon sound doctrine. Insist upon it. 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4 warns against those who have their ears, want their ears tickled and turn away from the truth. They then result in people teaching those wrong things. If you want faithful leaders, you must insist upon it. Don't settle for error and ungodly doctrine. Insist upon sound doctrine and pelt those circus preachers with proverbial tomatoes if they try to go against what the Bible says. Another thing to do, insist upon biblical standards for leadership qualification. Don't just let someone be a good teacher. Don't just let someone be gifted in their communication ability. Make sure they have the character and be involved in the testing process. If you know someone's in training for leadership and you see something about them that you don't think meets that character qualifications, first of all, tell them. And if it doesn't look like it's doing any good, make sure the leadership knows. Don't just wait until after the fact and say, well, I knew that. All too many people, we hear countless stories of famous leaders in the church who are falling and disqualifying themselves. And after the fact, you hear stories from this person and that person and this person over here, and they all knew things. And if they had just talked to that person or talked to the person who had some influence over whether that person was going to be in charge... These things may have, in some cases at least, been prevented. There's a reason why elders and deacons need to be tested. Part of that testing is the church caring and watching and being involved in that process. Invest in marriages. This may not seem very obvious up front. Invest in marriages. Why? What's the requirement of an elder or a deacon? He needs to be a husband of one wife. And someone who manages his own household well if they don't have a godly marriage how is he going to be qualified to be a leader this is why you should help people in the process of becoming married in the process of being young married people this is why you can encourage them and help them grow in godliness you don't just say well i hope one day he's got everything sorted out by the time he wants to become a leader no do this from the youngest age not only for their benefit but also because this is the seedbed from which godly qualified people arise Train your own children to be faithful and to take on ministry responsibility. And then encourage and support the training of leaders. Encourage and support the training of leaders. Give them opportunities, endure some bad Bible teaching. And of course, I don't mean that we tolerate heresy, and I don't mean that you should not ever be learning anything, but if you expect the standard to always be the highest that's available at your church at any given time, and you never put up with people who are growing into that role, then you're going to have a hard time for leaders to develop. A godly church encourages people who are trying sincerely and who appear to be on the path to being able to teach effectively. We need to put up with some boring messages with some people saying things and wording them in ways that might not be exactly the way they should, but we can give them feedback and tell them afterward, we need to put up with less than the best possible sermon or teacher every single week. Even Timothy had to be told to get better, First Timothy 4, make progress and it was going to be visible. That's how much room he had to grow. So encourage people who are growing, don't grow impatient with them when you see someone pursuing leadership help and encourage and be patient support them help them come alongside of them encourage them in the work and take a long-term view because what you might do now might not pay off for decades to come and yet someone down the road is going to be really thankful for the work that went in when you were here and you might not even be around anymore for that whether in the church or even in this world Take the long-term view. Care for the church. Invest in people who will one day lead the church. Well, I hope that this brings to mind some other things as well that you can do. This is a responsibility that we all have to make sure that there's faithful leadership in the church. And uh, most of all, of course, the leaders in the church that are already here need to be taking this on. So I ask you to pray for us as well as we do this and seek to raise up leaders for our church. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your... Uh, laying out of the importance of this and thank you that you give us grace to carry out whatever ministry role we find ourselves in as we sang earlier this morning yet not i but through christ in me the words of the apostle paul who said he labored more diligently even than the rest of the apostles and yet it was not him but the grace of god with him and so it is.